When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10. That's podcast10 to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. And now to the top analysis of today's markets. Is the market mispricing the Fed? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Dr. Kamal Sri Kumar, president of Sri Kumar Global Strategies. Hi, Sri. Thanks for being with us. Really good to be back with you, Maggie. It is excellent to have you back uh, and a great day for it. So the December Consumer Price Report, we're all waiting for it with bated breath. It came in in line with expectations. Is the Fed making progress in its fight against inflation? The Fed is making progress in its fight against inflation. As you stated, it is very correct, Maggie, but they haven't reached the target. The target is 2%. And even after today's remarkable improvement on all the numbers came in exactly as expected. But the year-on-year percentage change is still running at 6.5%. The Fed's target is 2%. So we are more than three times the Fed target. So the issue is, yes, it, they are moving toward in the target in a correct direction. The negative part about it is too soon to declare victory and quit. So what do you think they do with policy? Because the consensus seems to be, at the very least, they're reducing the amount they're going to hike. But you get the sense that people think there's maybe even a pause coming. Is the market wrong? Let's, uh, let's see what we mean by the Fed. We have the various Fed governors who have been saying things contradictory to each other, as they typically do in public. The only objective, I think, is to create more volatility in the market because they don't create any information. Some others benefit from the fact that they are able to go to Australia, they're able to go to Amsterdam and make statements. That's very nice for them too. But the markets are not benefiting from that movement. What we see today is that the market has rallied starting last Friday in anticipation of a pause in rate hike, followed eventually by a rate cut. Mm. The various central bank heads, they've been trying desperately hard to let us know that they are not stopping yet. They are going to keep increasing, but the market doesn't believe them. The reason is the credibility of the Fed is still very low. They misjudged inflation. And they waited a long time, even after they decided that inflation was not going to be transitory before they decided to tighten. And we are just, all of us are paying the price for it. Now, when the Fed says, hey guys, we are going to keep increasing interest rates. It's not done yet. Despite this number, we are still going to do it. The market says, aha, let's see, let's believe when we see it. And I don't think it's going to happen. That's the problem. 
Wow. Yeah, there does seem to be that tension. Uh, and and the market keeps going back and forth, but the, the sort of the, the default seems to be to keep looking for that pivot. We've discussed it um, and chatted about it on the show for a, really since the year started. Uh, so uh, George is asking, do you think they go 25 or f- could they surprise and do 50 in February, especially because the market seems to keep rallying, which is kind of working against their aims? If the market keeps rallying from now through February 1st, that's when we are going to have the decision at 2 p.m. Eastern uh, that day. If the market keeps rallying, then you do uh, 50 basis points. But if you ask me today and say, ignore the next several days, pretend the Fed is going to make a decision tomorrow morning, what will it be? I think it's going to be 25. You do. And that is not a good thing, in my opinion. Why? Because, yes, we have had the inflation come down, but we have seen the inflation come down in the past. Mm. Second, this expecting inflation to remain lower does not make any allowance for the fact that you can have all kinds of black swan events. Who expected last February 24th that a war, Ukraine war would begin and how what big an impact that would have on inflation prices? For instance, if two months from now we find out there is a China-Taiwan conflict, the Fed would say, oh, oh, we didn't anticipate that, but they would be the only people who did not anticipate it. The other people always worried it would happen. So those are the things that are missing from the current calculation. So I, I want to unpack those two, sort of two different thoughts there. I want to break them up. So one of them, you're concerned about inflation. It sounds like you're you're concerned that we could see prices going down, but then a sort of second wave of inflation. Is that is that a possibility you see? I'm looking, inflation has gone down, but yes, the risk is of a secondary wave of mm. inflation acceleration. Two reasons. One, if you say, hey, what's the basis for your expectation? Look back at the data. Look at 2021, 2022. We have several instances of a pickup in the inflation taking place. Second, we have a huge amount of stimulus which was built by the central bank. The balance sheet was already bloated at the beginning of uh, COVID in early 2020. By early 2022, the balance sheet had doubled again. And the interest rates are coming up from zero at a very, very low level. So there is a far distance to go. Those are the two factors that make me very concerned that inflation can rear its head up again. So this is this is very interesting, I think, especially given the posture of the market. I just want to flag for those of you who get our newsletter, uh, Matt included in there today a chart of the NYSE, and it's showing that even coming into today's session, the market's overbought. There, there seems to be this bullish sentiment. Uh, is is anyone pricing in the risk of resurgent inflation and perhaps not just a higher for longer, but a more aggressive Fed? How do you kind of calculate the risk of that happening or the probability of that happening? It doesn't seem like it's priced into U.S. equities right now at all. I don't think it is priced into the into U.S. equities at all. You're absolutely correct, and that is why it may, that's why that matters. If the Fed cannot put fear in the hearts of the investors, if the Fed cannot make them 
calculate more before they rush in to buy equities, the resulting rally is going to make the eventual task of the Fed even more difficult. They have to increase interest rates even more because of the fact that they cannot make the investors be more risk averse in their behavior. This this sort of brings up the issue of the Fed's tools. I mean, I know that you're very critical of their credibility at this point. Do they even have the tools to deal with inflation? They have the tools to deal with inflation, but not the way they operate it. It is inflation is not something like you say a magic mantra and then it disappears. It it is something that you have to work at for a length of time. You need to develop credibility. And the Fed does not have a structured policy. One of my writings over the years, Maggie, was to talk about the need for a structured rule for setting interest rates. John Taylor, who is one of my professors on the PhD committee and who is now at Stanford and the author of the Taylor Rule, set out the rules that should be set based on inflation expectations, based on growth expectations, where should you set interest rate? It's a very disciplined policy, but we don't have anything like that. I call the current setup as a seat of the pants policy making. (laughs) I got up today and I think inflation, the latest number is very low. So I'm going to keep the interest rate increases low. Whoops, sorry, inflation expectations pick up two weeks from now. I'm going to change my opinion. I'm going to increase interest rates. So there is no consistency. There is no long-term nature to the policy making. And that's what we lack. So the answer to your question is somewhat lengthy, Maggie. What I'm trying to say is that, yes, the Fed has the tools to deal with inflation, but it is not using them and it has not set up a good structure for using them. Can you imagine, just in my mind when you said that, Sri, I just thought of the press conference that Jay Powell has all the time. Can you imagine if someone asked, said to him, someone's described your policy as seat of the pants. How, how would you respond to that? Uh, it's just it's just hilarious, but I, th- I think that's what a lot of people feel. Um, so we have a great comment from Marco. By the way, you guys are on fire. Keep them coming. So many good questions right now. I, I want to I start bringing them in right away. Uh, Marco's saying, do we feel the current levels of inflation have become embedded given the tightness of the labor market? Great question, Marco. That is a great question. I think the embedded essentially says our inflationary expectations becoming second nature uh, Mm. to investors in the market. And I would say, yes, think about it. We have had high inflation now for about 18 months and we have had the Fed feeding it for a period of time. Uh, Wages have increased significantly more than in historical terms, and yet wages, the workers are losing in real terms. The wage increases are not keeping pace with inflation. So when you put it all together, even if the inflation rate comes down, the the workers are going to be asking for more wages. One more factor, in terms of the number of jobs available, we have about 1.7 jobs available for every single unemployed worker in the country. Why is it that that happens? Why don't we have an unemployment rate of zero rather than 3.5%? The reason is one, that even though the demand is for high-skilled computer programmers, 
I'm a plumber and I cannot get the job because I don't have the skill necessary for it. So you have one job available, you have one person offering the services and the two don't match. Yeah, a mismatch. Although I can't lay my hands on a plumber to save my life, but <laughs> um, it's, it's it's a good market to be a plumber, Raya. But yeah, that's uh, true. Yes. Maybe plumber is a bad maybe example. Maybe a different but example. But I know what you mean. It is. A, this is a, this is a, what, what they talk about: structural problems with the labor market, right? A mismatch of, right. of skill versus the even in even in industries where you didn't need those. Everything's a computer technician job now, even in the most basic. Uh, exactly. So that is a and, that is an issue. And we could have avoided that when we did the post-COVID recovery, the money had been given not only for childcare, not only for you to be able to buy your basics, but also to train you mm. to do something which is much more in demand so that when the recovery takes place, the worker is offering some services which are also in demand. And the open jobs to unemployed worker ratio is brought down significantly. And remember, Jerome Powell said one way he's going to lower inflation is to lower wage pressure, and he would lower wage pressure by increase, lowering that 1.7 number to well below one, the number one, meaning less than one job available per unemployed worker. But it just hasn't happened. Mm. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Uh, we have a question from Michael, softball question. I disagree, Michael. These are basic questions we should be asking. Have we seen the top for the 10-year yield? This is interesting because, you, Shri, you just published a research piece this week called Lessons for the New Year, and one of them was pay attention to signals from the U.S. Treasury market, specifically the yield curve. So what's the bond market telling you, and have we seen the top for the 10-year Treasury? Uh, to, there, are, there are actually two questions embedded in that, Maggie, and let me ta tackle the easier one first. Uh, during the period from 2017 to 2021, when there was a lot of expectation of yields going up, I took a contrary position and said 10-year yield will keep going down. And in fact, we ended up with the 10-year being going below 1%. Then suddenly I switched after January 5th of 2001, not January 6th, but January 5th, when the Georgia Senate elections were decided, when all branches of government went into democratic hands, I said, this is going to give rise to a lot of spending and inflation is going to go up, bond yields are going to go up. And I increase, and that's when roughly the bond yields started to turn around and rise. Ceiling, I have been saying for a while, the ceiling for the 10 year is 4%. And we actually went to about 425, 430, then we went, to 445, we are today about 450. I'm still saying 4% is about the peak. Mm. So if you're going to be, if you're an investor, if you're in 10-year bonds at 4% and you go to sleep and wake up two years later, you wouldn't be unhappy. You would do quite well. The second part of the question is about the yield curve. And that is, 
The yield curve from two years to 10 years is normally positively sloped, meaning the two-year yield is lower than the 10-year yield mm -hmm. because if you're lending money to Uncle Sam, you want to get paid more money for the longer term than shorter term. Yeah, it's supposed to look like that. Right. Exactly. And since early July, that trend completely reversed. We went into what is known as inversion. That curve became negative. In early July, it was about minus eight, minus 10 basis points small. By early December, it had gone to minus 85 basis points. And today we are at about minus 70. What is significant about that? Banks typically borrow short term and they lend long term. So if the short term, long term yield differential is reversed, banks are going to be unwilling to lend that causes a recession, and mm. that's what we see happening. Second, look at one other part of the yield curve, the three-month to 10-year U.S. Treasury. Today, it is negative or inverted to the tune of minus 110 basis points. So two different portions of the yield curve <clears throat> are suggesting a high level of inversion, and it says to me somewhere around June of 2023, we have the recession beginning, no matter what Jerome Powell might say and what President Biden might want us to believe, uh, the recession seems to be essentially baked into the system. Mm. So is that why you think that the top on the 10-year is sort of near 4% because we are inevitably going to go into recession? Exactly. Very good point. That is the reason for it. And as a result of that, inflation is going to come down because you have what is known as destruction of demand caused by a recession. And that in turn brings down the inflation rate that brings down the 10 year yield. So Lena, hi Lena, asked a, a great question on Twitter. Shall we see transient Goldilocks before recession, which may happen later this year? So do we get a period where things look good before we inevitably go into recession? A fake soft landing maybe. Yeah, yeah, we are in the transient Goldilocks that Lena speaks about. We are in it right now. Mm. Uh, inflation has come down. Last week, we found out Friday that we had created a significant number of jobs without causing a lot of wage pressure. When you put it all together, that's why the market has been rallying and the market doesn't believe the Fed because the market thinks that we are in a good situation and nothing is going to dislodge us from where we are. I say I say fake Goldilocks. It's not really fake. It's just that in, in order, sorry, in order to have a, a soft landing, you have to land. So when I say fake, I just mean it's a phase we're passing through, but it's not going to end here. It's not going to stop here. So the Fed's not going to be able to get a soft landing. You think that is, and exactly. which the market, which there are more and more people talking about that. So that is a pipe dream. You feel like. right? Exactly. So you are, if you don't want to call it a Goldilocks landing, you are in a Goldilocks phase of the economic cycle. Right, but short, but sweet. Sweet, but short, Not gonna, unfortunately not gonna last, but perhaps time to sort of get your house in order, get your portfolio in order, get exactly. ready for exactly. the recession. So, so do you think, there are some who argue that that recession is already priced in, the bottom's in, we've already seen it. The market anticipates it, so we already got through all that. The bottom was in October, they were looking ahead. Well, if, if the bottom was already set. In, then, in equities, I'm talking. Yeah, 
yeah, if you if the bottom had been set in equities and hereafter you're off to the races because you have seen the low point, then you're also arguing that inflation today at 6.5 percent is is success, is victory. Mm. Because if you have 6.5 percent, the Fed has to tighten further beyond. And as the tightening takes place, you're going to have more of an impact on the equity markets. It's going to have an impact on the earnings in the first half of 2023, which are not yet reflected in the overall set of numbers. That's where there is an inconsistency in the market belief in rallying, thinking that the worst is over, and at the same time, not having a low enough inflation rate. What that leads me to say, Maggie, is that by the time you reach about, say, four and a half percent on the inflation rate for the CPI, which is my figure for where we are going to come and come to rest, mm. we don't get much more of an improvement beyond that. The Fed has two options. It can keep tightening and push the economy into a recession until it gets the two percent. Or when we reach the four and a half percent mark, it can say this is victory. We won the war and then walk away from there, even though the target of 2% is not reached. So they'll accept that higher rate. So I want to bring back, I haven't forgotten the other, you know, in the two-part answer you gave I, that I wanted to unpack. The other thing you mentioned was black swan. And what if China invades Taiwan? Um, the unexpected. But we can also get a, get a tail risk from that where it could also be a positive. Right? It's hard to know wh which way that goes, but it would, would cause an extreme move that no one saw coming. Uh, in this week's new show, Steno Signals, my colleague Andreas looked at the implications of China's reopening. This is something right now a lot of people are talking about. And, and he took a contrarian view when it came to energy. He talked about lots of implications about, uh, that, that would come off the back of that. But one of them was energy. Let's take a listen to that clip. What I will say in relation to this energy story and the Chinese reopening is the following. Russia now only sells its oil to China and India. Those are the two major clients left. I find it very hard to believe a scenario where the OPEC plus decides to cut the supply of oil during a Chinese reopening, simply due to the fact that Russia cannot live with a scenario where they decide to quote unquote, piss off their biggest client in the commodity space. And that is essentially what they will do if they agree on supply cuts in the OPEC plus cooperation amidst a Chinese reopening. So I consider that a very unlikely scenario to unfold over the course of Q1. And therefore I consider supply to be ample relative to demand, even as in a scenario where the Chinese economy reopens. And that's why I prefer to bet on the Chinese reopening in base metals, such as copper, instead of in energy. And that full episode is available on our website. I highly recommend it. Uh, everyone's been going crazy. We love this new series. If you're not already a member, Brian will drop the link in the chat so you can figure out how to how to watch that whole thing. Uh, so Sri, how do you see this playing out? I mean, interesting conversation or angle that Andreas has, but what do you think? Is China's reopening bullish for energy? Uh, I take a somewhat different tack from Andreas. Uh, China opening up, yes, it is bullish for energy in the sense that uh, China enters and the economy starts to grow more rapidly again. They need more energy. 
and China is one of the biggest oil exporters, uh, importers in the world, mm. uh, along with Japan and India. Those are the three big oil importing countries. So yes, it is bullish. But on the other hand, it, the China and India are the two countries which are big customers for Russian oil, even after all the embargo has been set by Western powers, they continue to buy from Russia, they get a subsidized price. The difference from Andrea's view that I would take, Maggie, is that it is possible for Russia to give subsidized price to these two countries, and at the same time, cooperate with Saudi Arabia and other members of OPEC, so forming the OPEC plus, and set a much higher prices for the United States or for Western Europe. So you can play both games. You could do the subsidy for your two favored customers and at the same time restrict supply to the rest of the world. And because the two markets are not supposed to compete with each other, because if you buy from Russia other than India and China, anybody else buying cheap from Russia will not get insurance for their ships. So there are other restrictions that the Western powers have put on it. So Russia can deal with it both ways, which is why I think there is more flexibility for, that Russia has than I think uh, Andreas is allowing them to have in his talk. Yeah, very interesting point. A side deal, a side deal, and then they, then they exactly. you know, stay on course with OPEC+. Plus. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So when we're talking about economic growth, do you think that China's rebound, reopening, will be strong enough to offset some of the recession worries in the U.S. and in the West? Well, first of all, let's, uh, again, I'm going to break your question down into two parts. If the Russian economic, if the Chinese economic recovery does last, and we go from the three or three and a half percent growth that they had, let's say double that level, if not more, in 2023 as a result of the opening up, yes, it would be good for U.S. exports. It would be good, even more good, better for European Union exports. Mm. The question is, does that happen? Mm. What we have today is a Chinese abrupt opening up of the economy. The lockdowns have been completely removed. And effective January 8th, Chinese tourists can get on a plane and go to any country that would accept them with or without COVID testing on the other side. So it is positive for global tourism. It is positive for global demand. But also, at the same time, the numbers coming from Beijing suggest that the extent of COVID, in, COVID incidences have shot up in the last three to four weeks. Significant increase. So the question you have to ask is, the Chinese still go ahead with the opening up despite an increase in COVID, or do they abruptly lock down the system again? If it is the latter, it will cause even more disruption to the global economy in, in terms of supply side chains, in terms of economic growth, 
than if the opening had not happened at all. Mm. To open it and shut it down is much more serious. So that's the big unknown that we are dealing with today. Yeah. And it's worth reminding us all that it's an unknown and and especially so in China, where we do not have any information, reliable information, reliable reports or or any of the such. Uh, Question about the dollar. Three. We have it from Colin. What is your view on the U.S. dollar? Do you think the dollar's peaked? Is the peak in? Uh, The question is one of timing. Look at the past. Look at the past 12 months through September of 2022. The dollar was invincible. It went up to very high levels measured by the DXY dollar index, which was 110, uh, 110, 111, which is a 10, 12% increase over just a few months. From September onward, the dollar started to crack and to come down in valuation. For example, with the euro, we had the euro weaken to 96 and a half US cents from 1.13, a dollar and 13 cents at the beginning of 2012, it goes to about 96 cents by September. But by since then, the dollar has weakened considerably. The euro, for instance, is 106, 107, and the DXY index, which went to 110, 111, today was a big uh, dollar loss day. We are trading at 102. What happened? The U.S. Fed is talking about slowing rate increases. They've gone from 75 basis points to 50. And as you know, Maggie, we talked about going down to 25. All of that is bearish for the dollar. The European Central Bank, which began 2022, saying that there's going to be no rate increase at all during the year, now has had uh, rate increases of 250 basis point hikes they're going to keep hiking at the same rate for some period of time. So I expect that the dollar goes from 102 to well below 100, say 97, 98. But by the time the dollar, the U.S. Fed slows down, the European Central Bank, Bank of England are ready to slow down as well in the hikes. And that's when the dollar starts to pick up one more. So the sequence is through September of last year, the dollar was strong. Last four months, the dollar weakened, continued weakness for two or three more months, and then we see the dollar reviving, uh, getting life again by March or April. The good news is countries like it when the dollar is weak Mm. because they owe their debt in dollar terms, so they don't want to owe it in strong dollar. Uh, Second, commodity prices are dependent on dollars, gold price, cotton price, copper price, they are all affected by the valuation of the dollar. Uh, So the dollar weakening has also given some extra juice, extra oomph to the commodity producing countries. That's so interesting. So if I if I sort of look at the big picture and and the takeaway from this conversation, uh, the market is mispricing the Fed. Uh, we are in this phase that looks like a soft landing, but we're going to go right through it into recession. The Fed is going to have to stay on the fight with inflation. They haven't conquered it yet. So that at the very least means they're going to stay higher longer, but keep hiking, maybe past what the market thinks. 
4% is the top on the 10-year or around that because we are going into recession. The timing of that, in your mind, looks like it's maybe the June period. The dollar, like inflation, in a weaker period, declining period now, but there is a threat of a resurgence of a strong dollar as well. Uh, I guess my remaining question in China's reopening is, is a little unclear right now. Right. That may help, but that depends on it going well and continuing. I guess my question at the end of that, if that sounds correct, is um, what's the pain tree? What are you most concerned about? Um, is it another severe leg down in U.S. equities, global equities? Is it Europe? What are you most concerned about here? First of all, let me say you gave an excellent summary there of all the various points. So I think that's a wonderful summary to follow up on, uh, Maggie. What is the thing that I'm more worried about? I am both very concerned about and also in a sense looking forward to it, which is that something breaks within the system with all the rate increases and the quantitative tightening that is going on. Uh, I don't think the collapse of FTX, maybe it was related to the fact to some extent that there was a monetary tightening, but it was not the principal influence. Uh, it is more like what happened in the United Kingdom in September, uh, where you had a government which followed an absolutely insane policy on coming in on essentially giving tax cuts when the central bank, the Bank of England, was fighting inflation at the same time. Mm -hmm. And the guilt, as they call the UK sovereign bond yields, surged. The pension funds lost a lot of money and the Bank of England overnight switched over from quantitative tightening to quantitative easing. That's it. They threw away the book as far as inflation is concerned. We don't care anymore. We are going to do something different. Here in the United States, if you have something breaking, and then you will have the Fed, which is going to come in, say we are the last ditch liquidity provider. Mm -hmm. We have to provide liquidity. And for your investors, your listeners, the point being that is a big buy signal. That's mm -hmm. why I say it's also exciting because if you have a massive failure, if you have a Lehman Brothers, if you have a, a long-term capital management of 1998 take place again, and that's the time when the Fed enters to save the system. And saving the system means risk assets like equities essentially benefit from it at the same time. And you can hold on. It's like a, suddenly the, the plane which is landing is suddenly taking off in a hurry. And if you hold on to it, you're going to go to great heights yourself. Yeah, well, that's what everyone keeps thinking is going to happen, right? But we've got to survive that, <laughs> survive the event in order. So so we're going to end on, I'm, I'm guessing that means that you like cash here as well so that you've got some powder dry should we see that break and a takeoff in risk assets. Exactly. And I like two-year and 10-year treasury yields, as you would have guessed. They are on the high side. They're going to come down over the next year to year and a half. And any other high quality fixed income, which are giving a premium to U.S. treasuries, again, give you a very decent uh, income as you wait for the stock market to bottom. Sri, this was fantastic. And all of the listeners were so engaged and not only asking fantastic questions, but having like a really healthy debate amongst themselves during this conversation, which is what we love. So fantastic all around. Pleasure seeing you again. 
Thank you. And very good to be with you again, Maggie. Great. We'll talk to you uh, in the coming weeks and months about the potential for that black swan again. So keep your eyes out for us. And also just a programming note from us, super excited about this. Um, I think you've been hearing about it all week, but we are going to do an extended RVDB starting tomorrow on Friday so we can really dig into some of these important topics that are going to help you protect your money. Uh, tomorrow's is with Andreas and Rao. So get your questions ready, put your thinking caps on and make sure you join us. Us for that. You'll get a lot more details on how you can navigate through that new expanded hour-long episode. I'm really looking forward to it. In the meantime, as always, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.